The Federal Innovator Podcast is brought to you by Accenture Federal Services and produced by GovExec's Studio 2G. Meeting 21st century challenges will require federal agencies to innovate more, deliver better citizen experiences, and operate more effectively. Accenture Federal Services combines deep client, industry, and technology expertise to help agencies reimagine how they achieve their mission. Learn how Accenture Federal Services can transform your bold ideas into breakthrough outcomes at Accenture.com backslash federal. Welcome to the Federal Innovator Podcast. This is a podcast for and about the innovators taking on the biggest challenges in the federal government and making change that is more human, simple, and enduring. My name is Tim Irvin. I'm the lead for the Accenture Federal Studio. And I'm Stephanie Wander, Acting Director for the Atlantic Council's Geotech Center. We're so excited to speak today with Jennifer Shee, Chief Scientist and Program Manager for the Office of Innovation and Technology and for the Office of Investment and Innovation at U.S. Small Business Administration. Today, we're going to talk with her about driving the innovation pipeline. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me on here. You have a fascinating background, and we wanted to know if you would start by telling us a bit about yourself and your career. Having a PhD in neuroscience probably isn't what you'd expect for someone who works at the U.S. Small Business Administration. As the only cabinet-level federal agency dedicated to small businesses, the SBA works to ignite change and spark action so small businesses can start, grow, expand, and recover. I'm a chief scientist and program manager for the Small Business Innovation Research and Small Business Technology Transfer Programs, or SBIR and STTR. My whole federal career has been with the SBIR-STTR programs, which we like to refer to as America's Seed Fund because it's about $4 billion of non-dilutive grants and contracts that go to fund small businesses and startups doing research and development. And often this is the earliest money in to take ideas and research results out of a laboratory and move it into the marketplace. I got into science because I wanted to have as big of a positive impact as I could. I really didn't know anything about the policy world but about 11 years ago, a friend convinced me that I should check out this fellowship at the National Academy of Sciences. At the time, I was working for a startup, and someone on a career panel talked about SBIR funding. And I thought, wow, I really had no idea that the federal government funded startups. We should totally apply. But that fellowship that I did and that exposure to D.C. and the fact that scientists could actually have an impact through policy sent me on to another science and technology policy fellowship with the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And so rather than applying for SBIR grant funding, I applied and, and actually got to work at the National Institutes of Health with the National Cancer Institute in their SBIR Development Center. So from NCI, I moved on to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, coordinating their SBIR and STTR programs. And then I joined the SBA Office of Investment and Innovation in 2017. I mentioned that America's Seed Fund is about $4 billion of capital going to small businesses. This is distributed through about 7,000 grants or contracts each year from 11 different federal departments. You know, really, almost any agency you can think of that funds R&D is congressionally required to reserve a portion of that to go to small businesses through the SBIR and STTR programs. So statutorily, an agency that has over $100 million in extramural R&D has to spend 3.2% of those funds through the SBIR program. 
then an agency with over a billion dollars has to reserve 0.45% through the sibling small business technology transfer program. When you're talking about some of the seeding function, are you taking on the role of the federal Sherpa for those teams and maybe looking down the road? Like, is it a, they have an immediate technology or service that might be useful for those different agencies engaged in scientific pursuits? Definitely. really like to think about startups and how they're young, right? So they start small, but they're thinking big. And the need for small businesses and startups within the U.S. is that ability to be agile. You sometimes are going to be, it's more difficult to innovate into the future and think about what's going to happen out there in the future. So SBIR and STTR, this is funding for research and development. And so it's building on the foundation and the fundamental research that a lot of the federal science funding agencies also fund within university systems or through the federal labs, for example, and thinking about, okay, well, how do we actually get that into the marketplace and actually turn it into the impact that these agencies and the companies really want to have? Small businesses within the U.S. create a lot of new jobs because there's nearly two out of every three new jobs in the U.S. get started by a small business. Maybe they're starting small, but they're thinking big and going into the future. So SBIR and STTR, I keep referring to it as it's really focused on research and development. The bulk of STEM-related workers actually go into the private sector, and about 37% of them actually end up working for small firms. And that's a place to experiment and to be able to try new things and pivot quickly into trying growing. Are you harvesting existing things and then shopping those to the agencies or are you laying the groundwork for future innovations or future applicability? This is super exciting to think about because small businesses and startups can be agile, can be nimble. There's actually a balance of how we think about this, but really the SBIR program has been around since 1982. It's almost as old as me, but um, it's been the seed for amazing technologies that the federal government is willing to take a risk in before the private sector will. So some of the most well-known companies, I think, from that era of just when America's Seed Fund was just small was Qualcomm and Symantec. And some of those companies, the technologies that they developed back then, and now these companies are huge and still innovating. I used to be at the National Institutes of Health and one of the common things that people will know about would be like the Sonicare toothbrush. So before somebody had to fund the research to show that, that a vibrating toothbrush is actually going to be effective at improving your dental health and hygiene. But now that's in my bathroom. There have been a lot of changes. And I think that with 7,000 awards each year and with a $4 billion portfolio, there's this ability for agencies to make use of the programs in the way that makes the most sense for them. And so there is quite a bit of variety, actually. So with the Department of Defense or NASA, for example, they issue their funding to small businesses through contracts. That's how they do it. And they think about themselves as a potential end user and customer of that early stage research. The notion of, like you mentioned, Qualcomm and Symantec and Sonicare and a whole wide range of things that have come from very different places. And I think most folks wouldn't realize where those roots came from. Can you mention this around talking about agile and agility? One of my favorite quotes when contemplating the connection between human-centered design and agile 
is there's nothing so useless as efficiently building something that nobody wants, Peter Drucker. And I'm curious, how do you connect the needs with the opportunities? The program managers who actually manage the SBIR programs aren't necessarily the ones that are going to be in the programs of record at DOD, for example. And so it involves a lot of collaboration to identify who those customers might be. I think that there's some shifts more recently in terms of some of the agencies using the SBIR program in a way to help take some existing technologies and adapt it for government use. But for the most part, the program has historically really been taking early stage research and taking it through that whole development life cycle. And so with the customer side, there is a federal customer for some agencies and they put out those topics and they collaborate internally across their agency to find out what are different parts of their agency looking for, what do they need? And then on the other hand, an agency like Health and Human Services and NIH is the big piece of that. And so I was at NIH and really our mission at NIH was to improve human health. And it was not a, we're going to put out there the specific things that are needed. It's really much more investigator driven. I would really love to know how you see your programming enabling the ecosystem to flourish and also how you think about design and being human-centered in terms of your customers on the grant awardee side or on the funds awarding side. It's not always easy to get startups who are quite busy to come to the table for government funding. One of those things that we are super focused on is making sure that because at its core, this program, these programs are about innovation and you can't get innovation unless you have the full breadth of the entire country engaged. And so where we're focusing on is making sure that there are startups, that there are entrepreneurs, potential entrepreneurs who know that this opportunity exists to connect with the federal government, to turn research ideas into impact and solve real hard problems with the federal government. And so that's to say we're extremely focused on the policy side with the federal agencies on designing an equitable and inclusive ecosystem. And so we've been doing a lot over the last few years, I would say in particular, really focused on how we think about that customer experience. For us, I really love bringing human-centered design to policy because it's just a way to think about we are all human and how can policy happen unless the people who are implementing the policy can see how it connects back to what they're trying to do. We really wanna make sure that we're leveraging the entire talent across the entire country. And we wanna make sure that there's culturally relevant community conversant navigators who can help connect us to the small businesses directly. We don't have the bandwidth to talk to every small business or potential entrepreneur, but we do talk to a lot of ecosystem builders. So the entrepreneur support organizations and resource partners that SBA supports is how we try to get that message out there fully and across the entire country. There's something that you mentioned, Jennifer, around human-centered design. And I think human-centered design can be a real superpower to simplify the complex and focus on things that matter. And so I'm curious, how have you used that? On the technology front, sbir.gov. So that is our front door to sharing information about the SBIR program. 
And it's built on Drupal 7, which means that that's going away and we need to migrate. And so we're taking the opportunity to really think about, well, since we have to do a full refresh, we've been doing a lot of customer journey workshops and interviews with the federal agency program managers that have to report data through that system because it's really more than just a website. It's actually a full that's the full data system where the agencies are having to report about those 7,000 awards that they make and the billions of dollars that go out the door. One of the things we're trying to do is help connect all those ecosystem builders so that they can learn from each other and leverage each other's learnings and also best practices and collaborate. And so we've also interviewed them and we've interviewed small businesses. Now, one of the hardest group to find we're going through this right now is we're trying to interview companies that don't know about us yet, but would be potentially relevant. And so we're really trying to do a refresh. So that's all on the back end. And so parallel to that, we're also doing kind of a front end content refresh as well in really trying to ungovernment speak our website. And so we're trying to find those interviews with entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs who can they go to our site and actually look at it and figure out, is this relevant for me? And if it is relevant for me, what do I do next? That's great. I love the notion of ungovernment speaking website because it's easy to get into uh, just like confusing, complex, kind of opaque language. And I think having folks consistently bump into the same problems is pretty illuminating. So that's a great example. In the federal space, risk can be a very, very tricky word for agencies because it can feel like proactively highlighting a failure or being uncertain or maybe feeling that you're less expert in an area that you're expected to be an expert in. And yet it really feels like the work that you're doing with SBA is allowing you to, you're thriving in a high risk environment and getting these high impact technologies into delivered products and services. So are there any words of wisdom or general guidance for folks that are looking for the same type of impact, but know that they need to put themselves in maybe a little bit more vulnerable space? In terms of words of wisdom, I would actually think about it as you're not shouldering all the risk on your own and that we're a team. And I absolutely love being on, on our team. We try to innovate within our programs and try different things within the Small Business Administration. And I have regular conversations with our attorney advisor in the OGC's office. And I love having that conversation. So one of the things too is engaging early and speaking with the people who have those different perspectives on risk and what type of risk an agency might be willing to shoulder. And so trying to flesh out like, where's the actual concern and having those conversations is really important. So then you can think about building and innovating with a foundation that is not too shaky. Do you ever find that those small businesses are surprised with the amount of risk that you're willing to help them shoulder? If they haven't worked with SBA or with you specifically before? I would say you know, at a very macro, far away, high level, the different agencies, because of the different ways that they make use of the program, also have that different perception to the small business community. So Air Force and AFWorks has been changing a lot of the ways that they operate and a number of different agencies within the Department of Defense are as well and trying to think about how they can move towards that type of partnership and attracting 
the startups. And so it, it is that kind of risk benefit calculation and thinking about what, what's the potential impact that you can have. And then National Science Foundation, I think has been really very forward leaning. And they are really thinking about like, how do we get these super high risk technologies to get out there and provide that little boost to the company? Our investment as the federal government is de-risking the technical work so that they can attract private sector investors who are not as willing to go in at an early stage. I would love to have you expand a little bit on keeping inclusivity and equity in mind as you're looking at some of the seeding opportunities to make sure that you're casting a broad net, that you're giving voice to folks that are maybe not historically getting those opportunities. How do you ensure that? One of the specific challenges we have within America's Seed Fund is that there are disparities in STEM and there are disparities in business ownership and leadership, and they intersect in the SBIR program. So one of the things we're doing also is on the data side, (laughs) trying to better understand what our baselines are, like who are we serving, who's part of the program and who's not. And then it gets back to that ecosystem question too. How do we make sure that we're reaching people who don't typically work with the federal government and making sure that the different networks are not siloed, something that our office has been really focused on where broadly a lot of us came from agencies and we knew how hard it was to do all of that while trying to run the program. And so that's kind of the service that we're trying to do across the federal government is what kinds of tools can we put together? What kinds of those ecosystem builders can we connect so that we can create this more full partnership and collaboration I just want to say I'm so inspired by just hearing about the work that you're doing. I know it's not glamorous work, but it's so essential and it really makes a difference. So that's really thrilling. What do you think are some of the greatest barriers to seeding and scaling innovation? Seeding innovation, it's that fear of change. So when we think about innovation, there's the external innovation we're really trying to stimulate through all the small businesses, through the startups. And there's definitely fear because what we had talked about before around risk right? On the internal side, I'd say. Failing innovation, though, it's really about process and infrastructure. And I think we're going to see a lot of that challenge. Is there anything else you're geeking out about right now? That's what I'd love to finish up on just for fun. I'm really geeking out about data and evaluation. Like I'm super excited about the equity executive order and us finally being able to look at the metrics around equity and participation and really tackling policy in a data-driven way. So I don't know, I'm because I'm a policy geek. And so the fact that we had customer experience and the data and evaluation and equity all coming together is just super exciting to me. I'm so glad that you are where you are and that you're doing what you're doing. That's terrific. (laughs) It's awesome to have someone that cares that much about the data and how we can make change. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Jennifer. sessions. And I think we come in with a certain perspective of things we're going to hear. So certainly from Jennifer, expected to hear about innovation and the innovation ecosystem that they're trying to cultivate over time. But invariably, the discussion also gets into things like equity. Stephanie, I'm curious about some of the things that stood out for you with Jennifer today. 
I'm always just blown away about when innovation needs to happen in government, it has to happen at such scale. So the fact that she's really working across 11 different departments, that they network across so many different transfer offices, that really just stood out to me as kind of a level of magnitude and complexity that I think a lot of innovators don't necessarily have to grapple with that level of richness or breadth. I wanted to see if we can talk further about what does it mean when we really start to use human-centered design and apply that to these diversity and equity discussions? I was curious where you see the biggest dividends in human-centered design processes like through the process about where you have to dig deeper in order to really get to those answers about how do we make meaningful change when it comes to increasing equity. It requires a significant degree of intentionality. So just recognizing where unconscious bias might exist and that could very well exist in the complexion of your team. So I think there are some very simple things to look at initially around, like when you're thinking about discovery, so trying to find out the right problems. So ensuring you've got diversity represented in the solution team, bringing in diverse and historically disadvantaged stakeholders, thinking about not just gender, not just race, but also thinking about accessibility as part of that process as you're Mm -hmm. going through design and creation process. So I think being able to address some of those things very early in the project are going to be things that are going to lead to more equitable outcomes. I think every institution, including government, can do better on it because I think we tend to feel like 80% solutions are really sufficient and we tend to not think about who's the 20% that doesn't have internet Mm -hmm. access, that doesn't have systems that are compatible that maybe actually have other kinds of challenges or access challenges, whether it's vision or language or other kinds of issues that come and it turns out it's really, a lot of our systems just make it really hard to address and meet those challenges. So the role of translator, I thought was another really interesting responsibility that they were taking on as they work across those 11 different departments and work with multiple small businesses. Yeah, I feel like that role of translator, to your point, is like increasingly important. And I almost think it's a symptom of maybe the polarization that we're experiencing as a society, but it seems like we have a little bit less patience for the languages that other groups and folks speak. I feel like human-centered design can really be that way that we try to create that common ground and common space for us to have those kinds of conversations and to be a little bit less entrenched in our perspective or our point of view. Towards the end of the conversation, I did not expect Jennifer to bring up the notion and the idea of grief associated yeah. with change and associated with innovation. I would love to get your take on that and how that struck you. I personally have taken a turn towards, I think, what I'm going to call, I guess, emotional leadership or emotional management, that I think really great leaders help their teams navigate human emotions, risk, grief, fear, all of those things. And I think great leaders really do that well. There was a study that Google did of their top talent and their top employees. And what they found was that every one of their high performers, the common factor was having had experienced hardship. And so I think because hardship probably gives you perspective on life and what problems matter. And so that was to me just very powerful. I'm curious how that notion of conflicting feelings and change that is part of the grieving process with the below the waterline components of innovation around process and infrastructure. That was part of what I was taking away from it. Just the, I mean, it's back to inclusion, I guess. It's Mm -hmm. like space for the emotional unsteadiness or uncertainty. And that's not just okay, it's expected. And you need to kind of anticipate it and design for it. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the double edges of innovation is that you end up losing a lot of ideas in the process. (laughs) 
right? And people get attached to them. They get attached to their work. They get attached to the investment. And I definitely went through times where we, in fact, I I can remember again at XPRIZE, we had gotten all the way through a flying car competition design process. And it had represented 12 months of work. And our leadership made the really tough decision that they said they didn't think the idea was fresh enough, cutting edge enough at the right time anymore. And I tell you, you have to like, you actually literally help your team sort of mourn that loss and move on, especially with a late stage cut of that nature. And so I do think more and more being innovators is about helping your team manage that, whether it's the loss of the idea, the fear of taking risk, the fact that we are anticipating more rapid change. And all of that becomes, I think, more and more important as we kind of work through these processes. And ultimately, going back to this study that Google did where they said their highest performers are folks that have managed and weathered hardship and grief means that if we can help our teams manage emotions, we actually get to much better performance, much better outcomes. And so I think that the next age of really great leadership and innovation will be about how do we help our human teams be more human and be more human in healthy ways. Yeah, I love that point. Is there anything else that really stuck out to you as you're thinking back through our discussion? I think our conversation today, that was really fun. I don't know if there's a way to explore this more about human-centered design applied to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm still intrigued about where these different parts of the process are for us to do the design right. And maybe the part that we hadn't talked about was that we talked about it, I guess, in our podcast with Smithsonian is about when do we have to go right at our assumptions about the problem? What is the problem to really be better designers, to be better solvers, to be better innovators, and how much of those things are entrenched in a government innovation space. Particularly when you're talking about federal procurements, it's like the really deep prenup as opposed to like a great date. And so how do you go through that prenup and then still find love, find the kind of emotional resonance? And I think the requirement of a human-centered process is to make sure that you're framing the right problem that you need to solve. But I think the other piece, and this is where the ecosystem part that we are talking about comes into play, Mm -hmm is solution framing. And I think what my past sort of work in innovation has has taught me is that a lot of times, especially in this world where we are all so connected, where we are all so networked, that a lot of other people may be holding parts of the solution for us. And that a lot of times it's like not trying to invent a solution from scratch. That's almost when we fail. It's when can we really be integrators and try to figure out who has other pieces of the solution and maybe where might we have pieces of the solution that we had not thought of before. That's a great reference and a good reminder. I think one of the things that blew me away about working in the federal space or moving into it from commercial two years ago was the nature of the teaming arrangements and not just a scratch and itch from a procurement standpoint, but really going to best of read many different types of whether it's small business or individuals or folks that would otherwise be competitive on other deals, but to find the best parts of the ecosystem because you're working Everybody wants their firm to excel and be differentiated and win, but recognizing also that we work in a deeply committed mission space. And if there are existing you know, relationships or other providers that can do a very niche thing really, really well, like by all means, build that team, build that ecosystem mm-hmm. out. And that was so strange to me coming from commercial because that just isn't really going to happen. Yeah, I mean, that comes back to I think what you said about the challenges of being a government innovator and having to deal with formal procurement processes and RFPs where it has to be so laid out at the front end. And then sometimes it can be hard for people to trust that there will be those mechanisms for flexibility and, and innovation throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. Stephanie, you were magnificent as usual. Your grace was matched only by your wit. I can't top that, Tim, but the feeling's mutual. Always a pleasure to talk about these topics with you. Thanks so much. 
listening in to this episode of The Federal Innovator. Please stay tuned for more episodes as we explore innovation across the federal landscape. Thank you for listening to The Federal Innovator, brought to you by Accenture. At Accenture, we're helping the federal government do the extraordinary things it takes to create a better future for everyone. See how we're delivering this new future faster. Visit AccentureFederal.com to learn more.